text for this afternoon's worship service is taken from Lord's Day 3. It's on page 519 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 3. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No. On the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of her first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we were all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to do all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. The sermon I am reading this afternoon comes from the hand of Reverend C. Bellman, minister of the Smithfield Canadian Reformed Church in Ontario. After the sermon, we'll sing standing Psalm 144, stanza 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the conclusion of Lord's Day 2 has not been flattering. We confessed that we were inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. The obvious next question is, of course, where did this hatred come from? That's the material of Lord's Day 3 as formulated in question 6. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? It's an interesting question because its very foundation catches typical human thinking. I mean this. It's in us to look for explanations why we do what we do. And if the contact, conduct is negative, our default habit is to look for the explanation outside of ourselves. It's called blame shifting, something we and our children are very good at doing. It's Johnny's fault, or it's the way I was raised, or it's because it's that time of the month. We have no difficulty to come up with a list as long as one's arm to show how our conduct was just not our fault. But the creator of heaven and earth, and he's also the ultimate judge, leaves us no room for blame shifting. Why don't we love the way we're supposed to? The Lord God is adamant. It's because of our own disobedience in the beginning. And he adds, yet you are my people. So great is his mercy to the undeserving. I summarize the sermon with this theme. The Lord God has mercy on the blameworthy. First, we'll see our guilt before God. And secondly, God's mercy in Jesus Christ. First, our guilt before God. I mentioned we prefer to shift the blame. There is no one on earth today who denies that life knows brokenness, suffering, lack of love, and evil. But seldom will you meet people who dare to take personal responsibility for all the troubles of their own lives. An evolutionist will insist that evil exists in this world because evolution hasn't yet perfected things. Give it time, the evolutionist will say, and Mother Nature will weed out the weakness we know as evil. 
In terms then of personal responsibility for an incl inclination to hate the other, the evolutionist will say, it's not your fault. It's just the way of Mother Nature on the road to fuller development. Other religions offer different explanations. Islam insists that man is born in a state of purity, but in the course of youth external influences bear upon a person to make him do evil things. That makes it clear. The fault for evil in your life is not your own, but the environment around you. The Hindu will tell you that it's karma, that the way you are and the circumstances of your life are totally outside your control because you're getting the just reward of the behavior of an earlier you in a previous existence. Nothing you can do about that. The Christian, however, speaks differently. He has learned what scripture says and that, and that is that evil exists in this world and so I hate God and neighbor alike as a result of the fall into sin. That's Genesis 3, end of story. In point of fact, though, it's not the end of the story. For a natural tendency to pass the buck raises questions in our minds about our personal responsibility in the fall. Thoughts arise like the fall is actually God's fault because he planned it. Or if God had made us better, we wouldn't have collapsed before Satan's temptation. Or the fall is actually Satan's fault because he tempted us and he tripped us up or that the fall is actually Adam and Eve's fault, then we may accept that we have to live with the consequences of their disobedience. But our conscience doesn't bother us. The lack of love in our homes isn't our fault, but that's just human nature, and that's Adam's fault. But the Catechism asks, brothers and sisters, what you need to know in order to enjoy the full, wonderful comfort of Lord's Day 1. And the answer includes that I need to know first how great my sins and misery are. And part of coming to grips with how great my sins and misery are is the material of Lord's Day 3, a Lord's Day that allows for no blame shifting in any way. The point is this, as long as you shift the blame for your personal pain away from yourself, you will not enjoy the comfort of Lord's Day 1 to its fullest. What we need to do this afternoon then is clear our minds of the deception that the fall and its resulting evil is somehow God's fault or Satan's or Adam and Eve's fault and therefore not ours. We need to accept in faith that the responsibility is ours. Why then must we say that it's not God's fault, not Satan's fault and not Adam and Eve's fault either, but it is instead fully our own. The Lord reveals himself as a God who knows no evil in himself. He is perfect, free of defect in any way. More, he is almighty and so able to make something that's perfect free of any defect. He tells us that in a span of six days, he fashioned a world out of nothing. The climax of his creating work took place on the sixth day with his creation of mankind and then his own evaluation of his handiwork. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Genesis 1, verse 31. The Hebrew actually pauses to ask the reader to sit up and take note of God's evaluation. For the text literally says, behold. And that's to say, listen carefully. Note this. It is very good. 
Elsewhere, the scriptures relate what happened in heaven when God put earth together. For God tells Job that the angels burst into songs of joy and praise on account of the excellent work of the Creator. Job 38, verse 7. In fact, when John is allowed to look into heaven, he sees 24 elders fall before the throne of the Almighty and then hears them sing this song. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelations 4, verse 10 and following. It's clear to us neither angels of heaven nor elders who used to live on earth would sing as they do about the Creator's handiwork if it were somehow marred by defect. It's a point I need to press. We know that many in North America maintain that the world got here through a process of evolution. Some of these believers in evolution are Christians, and then the point is that they believe God created the world through the process of evolution. This variety of evolution is known as theistic evolution. Theistic evolution believes that the days of Genesis 1 are not normal days as we know them, but are instead long periods of time. Periods in which God slowly, through evolution, formed fish to be what they are, formed birds and trees and dogs to be what they are, and slowly formed man to be what he is too. This theory is actually an effort to blend the findings of science with the revelation of God in Scripture, and obviously there are problems with such a theory. I can mention that God's choice of the word day in Genesis 1 was not a mistake. If he had meant long periods of time, he would have used a word that conveyed that notion, for God is a God of truth. I can also mention the fact that he thought of God creating that the thought of God creating through a process over a long period of time does not capture the notion of his almighty power nearly so well as his calling something into existence instantly. But most importantly, and I raise this in relation to the material of our Lord's Day, the concept of theistic evolution has within its place for trial and error, with the weaker dying out and the stronger getting better. In this picture, people have existed on earth for millions of years in various stages of human development. These people had to kill to eat. More, these people died in the course of time. But where did death come from? The theistic evolutionist has to say that death is somehow natural. But so then is the grief that comes with death and the sickness that leads to death. You see where this is going, congregation? Theistic evolution explains the reality of evil in this world, including sin, as a natural phenomenon. Yet all evolution is led by God. So God is ultimately the cause of the evil present in this life. That picture is simply not one what one reads in the Bible. The Lord God tells us that on the sixth day of creation, he determined within himself to create men. It's Genesis 1 verse 26 then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That, in turn, is what God did. 
Though he called the stars and the grass and the frogs and the dogs into existence by a word of command, let there be, he decreed, with man he physically collected the dust from the ground, formed it into the shape of a man, and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. Genesis 2 verse 7. Later on the sixth day, he took a rib from the man he'd made and fashioned a woman from the rib. Genesis 2 verse 21 and following. He created man differently than he created horses and monkeys because man was unique. This creature alone was created in his image. The notion of image of God does not mean that man and women and, and man and women and God created looked like God. The notion, catch, the notion catches instead the concept that Adam and Eve and then the whole human race reflected the way God acted. After God finished creating the world, he did not remain on this earth. And so he left an ambassador on earth who could show all creatures, be it angels or animals or plants or insects, what God was like. Specifically, through, through the way man was to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. These fish and birds and animals and reptiles could receive an accurate understanding of God's love and mercy and justice. We understand the position God gave to man as his image on earth was an exceedingly honored position. This is David's point in Psalm 8. He stands outside one night and lifts his head to gaze up at the moon and the stars and he is overwhelmed by what he sees. Compared to the majesty of the heavens, he feels so small. That reality presses out of him the question of verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Beside the vast expanse of the heavens, a little six-foot man is a speck. Yet David says, as he thinks back to God's relation in Genesis 1 about God making man in his image, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 5. Heavenly beings, says our translation, but the footnote gives us a better reading. The Hebrew has here the word God. This is Genesis 1. God created mankind to rule over all his handiwork and do it in a way that images what God is like. What honor. What privilege. On a scale of 1 to 10, with God at 10, God gave the human race, men and women alike, a position of 9 a little lower than God. Can you fathom, beloved, the honor of that? This, we understand, is the glorious confession of Lord's Day 3. God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in external blessedness to praise and glorify him. That's not language that points a finger at God as if somehow he did a shoddy job in making us, as if the evil within us is part of his creating work. As Calvin would say, it's blasphemous to think in those terms. But I hear you say, that doesn't answer the charge that God planned the fall, and so the fall and our resulting depravity is still his responsibility. It is true. 
All things that happen in God's world occur because he has ordained it. He, after all, is 100% sovereign over all. He's the Almighty. But there's more to be said. For when the Lord God created man to image him and so give him such a high ranking amongst his other creatures, the Lord took seriously the numerous gifts he'd given to man. One of those gifts was the ability to act responsibly. So God could tell man not to eat from that particular tree of the garden, and man had it in him to obey the command, the command with ease. God told man to care for the garden and do it as God would do it. And man had it in him to obey the command with ease. Then yes, God is 100% sovereign over all that he has made. But man, at the same time, is 100% responsible for all he does. How those two square up is more than my finite mind can ever understand. And that's fine, because no creature, however exalted his position in creation may be, shall ever understand the mind of the sovereign creator. The long and short of this is, never can I pass responsibility for my fall into sin back to God on the grounds that the fall was part of his plan. Instead, I need to take seriously the exalted position God entrusted to the human race and recognize the responsibility that comes with that. If then we cannot blame God for our fall into sin, can we blame Satan? Is it not that if he had, hadn't deceptively appeared in the garden in the form of a snake, Eve would not have fallen for him? He was so cunning too in what he said. There is no doubt, congregation, that Satan's words through the mouth of the serpent were cunning. But the fact of the matter is that Eve and Adam too were not to take advice from any creature just on the creature's say-so. For the very simple reason that God had made the human race to be rulers over the creatures. On a scale of one to ten, mankind re received the position of nine, while the frogs and the goldfish and the snakes all received a position of one. That too is David's conclusion in Psalm 8 as he digests God's revelation in Genesis 1. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And that obviously includes the snake now speaking to Eve about becoming like God and knowing good and evil. If you eat of that tree, if a, if a child in kindergarten suggests to a teenager that throwing a stone through the school window will win the, that teenager the principal's favor and the, then the teenager throws the stone, will the principal accept the teenager's plea that it's all the kindergarten kid's fault? We understand it. The, teacher, the teenager can never blame the kindergarten student simply because of the teenager's greater maturity and responsibility. So it is too in relation to blaming Satan. Our exalted position as image of God means we can never shift the blame for our fall to Satan, nor to the serpent Satan had possessed. The Catechism catches this notion in Lord's Day 4, question answer 9, with these words. God so created man that he was able to obey. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself of these gifts. Yes, the whole thing was instigated by the devil, 
It was Satan who first raised the possibility of disobeying God. But the responsibility is ours. And that's caught in the phrase, in deliberate disobedience. That leaves yet our inclination to blame Adam and Eve. We think in terms of, we weren't in paradise. We didn't eat from the forbidden fruit. And so the fall really isn't our responsibility. Then yes, we accept that we have to live with the consequence of Adam's disobedience. But we feel that we don't take the responsibility for ending up living in a fallen and sin-filled world. The argument of scripture congregation goes the other way. If baby Cain, in fact, was not responsible for his own sinfulness, why did the Lord God not restore him to paradise? If the child born that day before the flood, was, if the child born the day before the flood started was not responsible for any sin, for you would argue that a child a day old has already sinned. Would God not be most unjust to have that child drown in the flood? Is that the kind of God we have? I can ask the same of a child in Sodom and Gomorrah, who was about to be born before God rained fire and brimstone from heaven on those cities and killed the mother and child alike. If that child was innocent before God, is God right to destroy that child within the city? Is that the kind of God we have? It turns out, congregation, that God taught Israel that every child is already guilty of sin at birth. That's the lesson of Leviticus 12, that chapter where the Lord commanded parents after childbirth to bring a sin offering to the temple on account of the child they'd born. The point is that this newborn is a sinner not just in the sense that this newborn will one day, when he or she is older, commit transgression against God, but specifically in the sense that this newborn is already guilty before God. How is this child guilty? This child is guilty in Adam and Eve. And that's why Paul can tell Romans not only that sin entered the world through one man, and that of course is a reference to Adam in Genesis 3, but also that all sinned, and therefore his reference is to the fact that the whole human race, in a way I don't understand, sinned with Adam and Eve in paradise, Romans 5, verse 12. In fact, Paul uses the same argument to show that sinners are redeemed through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. For, says Paul, we died with Christ, Romans 6, verse 8. And his point is that somehow, and again, in a way I don't understand, Christ was not the only one who died on the cross and was buried and arose. Somehow I also, with all the saints, was present on Calvary and died with Christ, was buried on Good Friday and arose on Easter Sunday. If that argument will hold for me in relation to redemption, it shall need to hold for me also in the relation to the fall. I simply can't blame Adam and Eve for the evils of life as if the fall into sin is their fault and not mine in any way. Instead, I am responsible for my own sinfulness and so for the evils I commit as well as for the evils that happen to me. There is, brothers and sisters, a consequence that flows from all this. It's in us to try to shift the blame for our troubles away from ourselves and point the finger at another. We do it readily in daily life 
and we're very good at it. And no doubt, others contribute to our tribulations. But the fact of the matter is, when we encounter the troubles we have, because we no longer live in paradise. And here's the thing, that I'm no longer in paradise is not, says the Lord God, God's fault. And it's not Satan's fault. And it's not even Adam and Eve's fault. But ultimately, says God, my exile from paradise is my fault. Before God, I first of all am responsible for the brokenness of my life, for the tensions of my home, for the evils I experience, be it in giving or receiving, I will not do before God to shift the blame to another. And yes, that observation has consequences. We are humans, we are not goldfish. God created us a lofty position of nine on a scale of one to 10. And that position comes with distinct responsibility. We need to take responsibility, all of us together and each of us individually, for falling off that exalted ladder. And we need to take responsibility for the bitter results of that fall as we experience them daily. In the light of Genesis 1, it is below the dignity of being human to blame everyone else for our troubles. We need to be men. We need to be women. We need to truly be human again and not act as if we are no more responsible for our circumstances than goldfish. But taking responsibility for our broken circumstances, brothers and sisters, also looks like something. It implies we give up pointing fingers, blaming our upbringing, blaming the poor night's sleep, blaming the time of the month, blaming the others in the office, blaming the pressures of home and of work, etc., and in the process, feeling sorry for ourselves. Instead, we shall adopt our posture of humility, recognizing that the troubles I encounter have come upon me as the just consequences of my own fall into sin in the beginning. And that attitude will drive us to seek the only redemption there is from the troubles of life, and that is in Jesus Christ. It's our other point. God's mercy in Jesus Christ. The person who makes the confession of Lord's Day 3 is the same person who earlier made the confession of Lord's Day 1, namely, that I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him because he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. There's now the question. Why did the Lord Jesus set me free from Satan's power and make me his? Might the coming of Jesus Christ into this world somehow be an expression of regret from God's side for the predicament into which he has somehow let us come? Make no mistake, congregation. God did not send his son to redeem us because he was somehow sorry that he let us fall, let the fall into sin happen, or because he was sorry that Satan got the better of us or because he recognizes that we were not present in paradise and so are suffering because of someone else's mistake. In no way are there apologies from God for our troubles. But why then did he send his son? Why, congregation, simply and out of his great mercy to those who did not deserve it? See here your God. 
He redeems the blameworthy, and that is grace, to have mercy on those who put themselves in a bind. How wonderful this God is. There is more here. What has this Christ done to redeem you? He, brothers and sisters, was a man and acted the part of a man. That's to say he recognized that God had given him an exalted position as ruler over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And that includes that he was both master over himself as well as master over the devil who tripped Eve up in the garden in the beginning. On the cross of Calvary, he engaged the devil in combat and defeated him, bound him, and was and so was elevated by God to the throne of the universe. There is more still. For when Christ died and arose from the grave, he died and arose, we died and arose with him. Even as we had sinned in Adam, more when God exalted Christ to the right hand of God as Lord over his creation, he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, says Paul to the Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 6. Imagine that. You and I, in principle, restored to that place of nine in the scale of one to ten. What honor. What privilege. But if, we're, if we are restored in principle to such a place, I need again to acknowledge the responsibility that comes with such a high office. That means, first of all, that I cease passing the buck to shift the blame of difficulties to others but I'll acknowledge before God my sins and the sins of those whom God has given me responsibility. In the strength of the Holy Spirit, I'll act as a man again, once created and now recreated in the image of God. Instead of being a wimp, I'll take charge under God of my life, my home, my work, and myself. You feel it's all too much? This, beloved, is where Lord's Day 3 stands on the shoulders of Lord's Day 1. For Lord's Day 1 had confessed this wonderful promise of God. By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Our lives know so many troubles and so much brokenness. I have learned from Scripture where this brokenness comes from. And so I'll confess with humility my own contribution to the pain and trouble of my life. Instead that of pointing a finger at another, I'll confess in humiliation that I deserve God's righteous judgment on my disobedience in paradise. Then I'll be marveled in unbounded jubilation that the God I rejected in paradise has again made me his own out of mere grace alone. What a God this is. Amen.